Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast. Episode 35, Dangerous Mechanics. Recorded by Jason Pitr at Metatopia 2013. Presented by Jason Pitr, Kenneth Height, Rob Donahue, and Will Heinmarch. Why didn't you just say, and 
you have to do this thing that Fred and I have been doing unconsciously. Uh, because the thing Fred and I have been doing unconsciously is learn it so well that we don't think about it so much. But no, that doesn't fix the part where you move it around to... I mean, you, you're still breaking the... I mean, if, the fi- if the breaking fiction problem is the problem, that you've was, been doing that from day one. Right, but we were much more tolerant of that because we weren't noticing it because we weren't paying attention to ourselves. It was something that became... You know, it was something that became evident when I was watching Fred GM someone else. Right. You were like, how come he gets away with shit? That's my trick. <laughs> okay, so... There was no fix for it. You were just playing your own game wrong. Yes. And then you realized you'd memorized your own faulty rules so well. We had built the duct tape into our brains. Yes. We couldn't ship that. Okay. All right. Um, And so the problem is is that the rule is slow and it's fiction breaking. Yes. Right. Okay. Um, That does strike me just sitting here as not just a dangerous mechanic, but a flawed mechanic. Yes, indeed. Perhaps even a broken mechanic. Yep. And a tempting one. But I would like to... And I'd also like to point out this was when we were still very early on and we were kind of dumbasses. Yes. I would, I would, I would like to uh, just sort of put a marker down at the beginning of this panel to say that a dangerous mechanic is not always a mechanic you don't want to use. Fair enough. Like a nuclear power plant, which can be dangerous, but is also a hell of a good way to drive a submarine. Sure. Now, if you're building, say, a bus, probably not the best idea in the world. But a lot of games are submarines, and not all games are buses. Absolutely. So, I just want to put a marker there that says, although a mechanic is dangerous, and you should be aware of the dangers, and you should know where the cadmium rods are stored that keep the mechanic from melting down, don't throw it out. I mean, this mechanic just had does sound like a clumsy clutch. This, This one was, but... It's not hard to take this particular mechanic and build, say, a magic subsystem that uses it. It's actually a perfectly good mechanic for ritual magic. Yeah, because uh, that you want pausing and thinking yeah, about it right. and, and interfering where it's only one skill. The fact that there's a high variability in outcomes is consistent with ritual magic, and the time-consuming element is not a breaker. Right. And there's another good one. So here's one submarine. Dragon Age. Oh, so yeah. it's the same general mechanic, but the rule is you must spend it. Immediately. Yep. And you've got a nice little constrained model for it. Yep. Okay. So that's uh, one example or set of examples. Uh, Will, do you have a, a dangerous mechanic to volunteer? You know what's funny? I was thinking about this on the plane here and all day yesterday, and this is the problem that I realized I had. Is first of all, there were tons of feats that didn't do what they were supposed to do in D&D. You didn't find out until I hit an audience of thousands, right, that I designed. Um, uh, there are tons of spells that you're like, oh, spells great, and the problem ends up being it's not that it's great, it's that it's useless. It's that it's, it looks great on paper. I, I, I think it'd be cool if dude did that in a movie. Nobody's ever going to take that. Spell. Why would anyone ever buy that ever? My, these kinds my, of things. My players call that the rain of nuts. <laughs> <laughs> There's a spell in GURPS that is the rain of nuts. It's in the plant college, and it causes nuts to fall out of a tree and do one die four damage or whatever that is. <laughs> die six minus two, and. The hilarious thing is because it's the only thing in the plant college that attacks you. It's like the prerequisite to a million other spells. And one of the players was playing a sort of druid-influenced guy, and he just, every time he would look at his sheet, he would say, or I could rain of nuts him. (laughs) And the problem with that, it's not, like you say, there's nothing wrong mechanically. It's like every other GURP spell, which may be a different problem. But it not only is useless in play, it's also annoying. It reminds you that you had to waste time on this crap 
on your way to the spell you actually wanted to cast. Don't forget, every spell after this one cost more because I first had to pay for <laughs> Rain, Rain of Dust. Yeah. It's, it's the Joe staff. Yeah, right. See, yeah. This weapon is worse than every other weapon in every possible way. <laughs> yeah. And I can spend money on it? What a great idea! Yeah, so um, I, I, I don't know that that's necessarily a dangerous mechanic, no, but I think no. that the notion of a mechanic where you have to buy spell prerequisites can be dangerous when it invites you, the designer, to go for completeness over usability. Right? Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, you had a thing. The, the thing I was just going to say is that the, the notion is, to me, um, the, da- the one of the underlying through lines through the bad feats and the bad spells is a monster that you're like, that monster seems great, and you put it into play to go, and now my players are dead. And not just my, not their characters. Something has gone wrong. That is a dangerous mechanic. Did I not understand what the panel was? <laughs> I may have just confessed to a crime. <laughs> um, but the, uh, 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 the problem is... Oh, oh sir, it's the best of the shimmer! It's not necessarily that the mechanic itself is uh, uh, flawed as much, or is, it's that it doesn't represent itself as what it does. We had this in Mortal Darkness stuff all the time. People would be like... Uh, uh, I know, right? The vampires. <laughs> how could this happen? Um, that he uh, uh, was uh, so rigorously controlled. Where uh, uh, people would buy a power, thinking this is great, I can do all this stuff with it, and then either the, either the storyteller doesn't create the opportunities where the power is useful, or they go, "No, wait a minute." So that's an and, not an or. This power sucks, right? And you're like, or the, or you just go, "Okay, the spike chain. This seems like fun," and then you put it into play in D and D three, and you go, "Oh, it's not that it's fun. It's that I am a god." <laughs> <laughs> Right? And you buy it, oh, and the DM reach. says, the DM I gives see. out a plus one spike chain, thinking, oh, that's cool, it's a visual, uh, Tony will have a great time with that. And then Tony takes the spike chain into battle and buys a feat for it, and now he's throwing it at people as you go, oh, and it's got a crazy crit range, and it does 96 damage and all this stuff, and, he's, and you go, oh, it's broken. It's not just, it's not just cool looking. Oh, like Captain America's shield. Like Captain America's shield, it's not just cool looking. It's also mechanically superior to everything else in the game. Um, and so I guess the, the, the big thing I kept coming up with is the fact that the, <coughs> the most dangerous mechanics are the ones that appear fine, often even for one or two sessions, right? Yeah. That the problem is, is the one that, when the, when the plan comes into contact with the road, um, when, a, when expectation does not match delivery. And that is especially right when, when uh, uh, you think that it has because your playtest group or your nine playtest groups or whatever all were like, no, I knew what you meant, it's good. Right? And you go, knew what I meant? What does that mean? Right? What, what did you just patch for me? Don't do that. But uh, uh, then you put it out into the, into the wild and you get a million questions from friends. I want, I want to put a little bit of Ken Bain out there. Because um, you're, you're talking about some mechanics, at least your premise, is that some mechanics are dangerous and yet still to be kept, mm-hmm. so long as you know how to lower the containment rods. Right. Tell us about how sanity damage is a dangerous mechanic, Ken. Uh, sanity damage in Call of Cthulhu? Yes. Uh, sanity damage is a dangerous mechanic if you do not mean to build a death spiral into your game. Yes. Right? Any, and, and it was worse in, worse or better, in uh, Sandy's original draft, which I don't know if you know, there was no way to recover sanity once you'd lost it. <laughs> so you lose one die six sanity meeting a deep one. You are one die six closer to permanent character retirement. End of story. Thank you for playing. Here's a copy of the Necronomicon. Good night. <laughs> now, for the game Sandy wanted to play, that was a perfect mechanic. There was 
no containment rods because the game was about a meltdown. Yeah. Right? <laughs> there are people who, um, when they are playing Call of Cthulhu, have not necessarily internalized the notion of the Death Spiral. Fortunately, that number has diminished as the legend of Call of Cthulhu has spread. Not to mention the fatalities. <laughs> not just with Will's yes. um, but the uh, But the danger is that you incorporate a mechanic like that into another game that is not about being destroyed right. by evil, right? And suddenly, for some reason that you're not aware, your superheroes or um, uh, FBI agents or whatever they are, are always circling the drain of instability and having, you know, uh, running away from ghouls or whatever it is that's not behavior you're trying to model. Like I don't understand why our tune games have gotten so morbid. <laughs> are there other problems with the sanity uh, damage mechanic along the lines of simply mechanizing the notion that your brain has hit points, so to speak? Um, well, uh, you can... I don't know that I would call that a dangerous mechanic in the sense that it causes in-play mechanical gamist problems. I would say that you can make an argument that as a fiction it is reductive. I'm not sure that that argument doesn't also hold for every other mechanical contrivance in every other role-playing game ever. But if, but if you say my game is about going mad and it is less detailed in the respect of going mad than it would be about taking physical injury then your game is not actually about going mad. Going mad is simply a thing that happens to you on the way to, you know, getting a hilarious bullet wound. The, the, and so when you say, my game is about going mad, you should perhaps ask, not are these mechanics dangerous, but are these mechanics going far enough and saying what I want the fiction to say? So many, many people have said, the Unknown Army's madness meter, because it gives your brain five hit locations is better than the Call of Cthulhu sanity meter, which only gives the brain one hit location. Now, this is both true and untrue, and this is my point about dangerous mechanics. In Unknown Armies, because everything is told from a human perspective, looking from outside the human brain at your five stress points is more realistic and feels more like genuine story of mental collapse. In Lovecraft's fiction... The human brain is just basically one blob of gunk that is ill-suited for looking at reality. And it doesn't matter whether you're ill-suited because of your sense of abandonment as a child, or because of your career of, of violence, or because of your inability to understand levitation, or whatever it is. It's just as ill-suited for everything. And so one you know, set of hit points for it is no more or less unrealistic than one set of hit points for your body. And I think that when you are looking, as Sandy did, at a Cthulhuoid perspective, one string of hit points for your sanity makes sense from a design perspective and feeds certainly the narrative that it doesn't matter what you try to dodge with, you're still going to all take going to the same six hit points to your brain. Now, you can say, this does not let me tell stories of human disintegration. And that would be a defensible statement. So, that's... I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure if I'm falling for Fred's trap or evading Fred's trap. <laughs> but, um, uh, but, I wanted to find out yeah. how it's dangerous and yet something to be careful. 
captives. Yeah, right. And and, and, and I would say um, uh, that that uh, you know knowing what you're intending to model is sort of the core of all dangerous mechanics, right? If you put uh, and, and the classic example that I go back and uh, go back to always is a die twenty versus three die six, right? Linear versus bell curve, and this is game design one hundred and one, right? Linear means anything can happen with an equal chance. You can chop the orc's head off, or you can stab yourself in the eye. Both of those are completely equal. Or you can have an average hit. That's also equal to chop your head, your own head off or chop the orc's head off. That's a linear curve. A bell curve says that, on average, average things happen more often. That meets more human expectation. Now, the reason that uh, one can argue heroic fantasy should use a linear curve is because it is stories about things that happen out on the margins anyway, right? Conan never should have an average hit. Conan's axe either should shiver against the mighty sorceries of Thulsa Doom, or Conan's axe should chop through 90 uh, uh, filthy um, uh, men of... Uh, uh, men of Stygia, right? You know, so there's no middle ground for Conan. Conan never says, "Oh man, I nicked his arm." I hit with almost no damage. <laughs> yes, exactly, right? So a heroic fantasy, maybe you want to pull up those ends of the bell curve and make it so that yeah, these crazy responses can happen, and that is why the solution to the fact. Hold on, hold on. How come Conan is missing half the time? Is to just give Conan a plus eight to hit, right? So, oh look at that. I've moved the bell curve, I've moved the line, and it's only awesome things can happen to Conan. But if you are trying to model more normal life, or anything that you want average result to cluster, and you want wild results to be wild, you want something with a bell curve. And that's, you know, your GURPS, your hero, your fate, your whatever it is, something where your average results are average. And depending on what you're trying to model, a bell curve is going to feel less heroic because it is less wild, and a linear is going to feel less real because less rational. So when GURPS tries to do heroic fantasy with a 3 day 6, you have to put a lot of other buttresses into it that you can solve in D&D by saying, Conan has plus 8. Right? So neither a bell curve nor a D20 line or D percentile line in Call of Cthulhu are dangerous per se, but they will both, you know, wreck your engine if you put them into the wrong motor. They're just pointy. Yeah. It raises the question, right, which is, what, a dangerous mechanic endangers what? And obviously it can endanger all kinds of things, but that's yeah. the question you ask and then answer when designing these things. You go, well, what does this endanger? Does it endanger the suspension of disbelief? Usually that's bad in the game. Yeah. Does it endanger I mean, the suspension of the, the fun? I mean, yeah. the, the yeah. example of, of that the Rod uh, gave us at the beginning was that endangered both uh, fiction and yeah, play, yeah, right? Yeah, speed and, and clarity, and, and, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. And so you say the things that this endangers are are in unacceptable levels of danger. Yeah. So I need to protect them. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to save the uh, the slow pitch for Rob. Uh, so in, instead, I'm going to talk about backgrounds, as in background history for characters in classic D and D. You know that things that you do in the off time, off screen, where you, you know, write your back history. So, that sounds like a lovely way to build characterization, and you'll actually get a rich character out of that. <coughs> so, um, what was original D&D about? Fighting shit in a dungeon. Yeah, right. Uh, Zero to Hero. What happens when you build that backstory in 
and all of your uh, contributions to the character's life history happens before you start playing. Oh, wow, you're now you're terrified and risk averse. No, you're not. <laughs> so, some players are. Some players, yeah, yeah. Well, some players can't play D&D. This has not been news since 1974. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, and that's also the only point of authorship of any of the fiction. Once you hit play, you have no ability to define background in according to many of the base rules. Um, well, I mean, or at least in the, how it's been displayed. In, 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 in the base, base rules, there are literally no rules for it. So no one has ability to define background according to the rules, right? It's all uh, ad hoc and improv. Now, once you start having rules for when you put background, you can argue then that in the negative space, the GM must be the guy who's deciding. But by then, again, since the narrative, as you say, is zero to hero, you're defining your background every time you loot an orc and temple or slay a princess or whatever it is you're doing, right? That's your... She was a bad princess. Stop it. <laughs> I mean, that's you defining the background because that's what the story is about, right? I think there's been an interesting thing in Amber Diceless with uh, uh, awarding points for writing background material, right? That was, yeah. that was a way to get extra character build points, like, early yeah. on. Um, this is awesome until it encounters a group where nobody wants to build backstory except for the one person who just turned in 50 pages of fanfic, how many experience points do I get? Uh, yeah. Right? And right. then suddenly this person's showing up to the table with this incredibly rich amount of baggage um, uh, that, that, that they want everyone to appreciate respect. That is a, a genuinely dangerous mechanic because yes. I, have, I have played Castle Falkenstein mm -hmm. with a similar, where I believe, I forget if the mechanic was in the rules or if I edited it after reading <coughs> because it's been a while since I played Falkenstein. Oh man, and Falkenstein might be one of the contenders for potentially most dangerous game. But you combat it, Falkenstein. Among, among other things, you've got that. You've got the reward mechanism, you've got the combat problem. Mm -hmm. I'm reasonably sure I'm forgetting at least one of the rules that's kind of tricky in there. Of um, uh, uh, magic, actually. There both both yep. types of magic are... Yep. Um, well, I mean, given that one of them explicitly says, this magic is horrible and dangerous and anything can happen, I guess they covered themselves. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Falk is an interesting case in a lot of ways. Yep. And I will defend combat in Falk in a oh. way that I won't defend other things in Falk. But I had, ran into exactly that problem where... The players who either didn't care or since we were all students at the University of Chicago didn't feel like writing an extra term paper um, did not get points. The ones that did not only um, uh, got more points and began to slowly point the narrative mechanically towards them because they were the ones building backstory. They were shifting the narrative dramatically and gravitationally towards them. And now that can be a, a, an okay thing with some game groups, but with other game groups where spotlight equality is more important, that creates a very dangerous mechanic because it's seemingly enforced by the rules and no one can quite put their finger on why it's happening. Yep. Why are we always dealing with uh, Princess Eleanor's crap? And you can't really say it's because, you know, Stacy was the only person to give us any backstory, you jerks. You got five points. You, you got, got five, snacks, yeah, right, yeah. That doesn't build anything. Okay, right, and, and so the, um, uh, and so I think that's a, that's a really good case of something that does something you think, this is rewarding positive behavior, but it doesn't... It has balance issues. It, it has balance issues. Yeah, I guess, I guess that's probably the, the cheapest, fastest way to get out of that sentence. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to throw up a challenge here. 
for, for, for everyone here, as I'm thinking about, you know, juggling chainsaws. Uh, I think I have in mind the most dangerous game of recent release. The most dangerous game? Most dangerous game. With the, basically, that is the game with the greatest collection of genuinely dangerous rules. Okay. This, this game includes pool expenditure, which is a dangerous rule because it's, got, it's tightly tied to pacing. Uh, this game has... Using your Benny, your Bennies, your fate points as XP, which introduces a painful choice and is very potentially very problematic. It has some save or die mechanics, and it has the Archmage problem of having uneven class power that become, is balanced by one of the classes being egregiously more powerful than any of the others at the end of the of the arc. Um, I think this is currently the contender, but I'm curious if there are other games that seem equally collected and dangerous from the rest of the table's perspective. Um, rather than be coy, the game in question is Monty Cook's Numenara. And Monty Cook is entirely capable of juggling chainsaws, so I am not using any of these to say that it is a bad game, but these are all things to be to steer clear of. Okay, you had a question, I think, or your hand was going up. Uh, I was actually going to ask, uh, you're, this is for away from the Numenera thing? But, yeah, that's all right. Uh, We're all just pondering yeah. Numenara, right? <laughs> Uh, you're known as a big fan of Call of Cthulhu. Um, are there any rules? I mean, you sort of put why sanity is not a dangerous mechanic in Call of Cthulhu. It doesn't supposed to be. Um, is there are there any mechanics you think are dangerous in Call of Cthulhu? Like I was thinking, maybe having rules for martial arts when a player is going to take that, try to fly, kick a deep one, then get eaten. That, that's probably a good thing in Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, I don't see the yeah. problem with that. <laughs> uh, but are, are there any hand grenades hiding in Call of Cthulhu that? For, for, for GMs especially, because anything that gets a player killed for being, for being overconfident is probably a positive point. But well, is there anything there you think that's lurking? Because there are some things that are sort of hinky there, but I don't... I mean, from a mechanical perspective, and purely talking about mechanics, I don't... I mean, first of all, all Cthulhu is such a short, simple rule set, there's not a lot of room for danger, right? Yeah. I mean... The danger that's there is danger that's intentionally built in by Sandy. The the original danger of RuneQuest, that your characters are glass cannons, right? That's intentional, and that's even more true in Lovecraft than it is in Glorantha. So, that's solid. The dangerous mechanic that they're fixing in 7th edition, that the combat skills are broken out over about a dozen different skills, that's on purpose. You shouldn't be able to build a combat monster in Lovecraft Universe unless you are really over-dedicated to that. Right? That's, that's a deliberate choice. And so a lot of the things that look like dangerous mechanics are actually feeding the fiction, which is the world of horrible danger. They're not dangerous mechanics, they're horrifying mechanics. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and, so, and so when you say, are there, are there uh, 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 time bombs there for the GM, are there, are there things like that, there are certainly situations where if you are playing Call of Cthulhu, you can let the glass canonicity of the player characters and the occasional, and, and again, this is where your your uh, your bell curve will, or your linear will screw you, because going insane is crazy common for something that should theoretically only happen 25% of the time, or whatever it is, right? And when you're rolling on those percentiles, they literally can land anywhere. And in a game of tension and pacing, rolling that 01 or rolling that double lot we remember the times that it really fit the fiction and it really fed us and it really made us feel great because we are conditioned to remember good shit so that we can find the waterhole where all the cool things were. But that's a different point. Um, but the 
times that it fucked the narrative and you have to backpedal and say, well, that guy wasn't the high priest, that was the high priest's friend Steve who was dressed as the high priest as a joke, or whatever, that will come back and bite you. Or the character that goes insane too soon, right? That you put in what you thought was a, 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 a masking thing. It's just three deep ones. There, there's like four of these guys. They Oh, that's a terrible idea for three different reasons, all of the deep ones. And, you know, you've just really swept out the players and you've made them risk-averse, and now they're like, I'm not going to that stupid temple. But that, 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 the frickin' lobby killed us. <laughs> we haven't even gotten to the ritual center. We haven't seen Altar One. And we're, like, holding in our intestines and Ray here is catatonic. This is awful. You know, and so risk-aversion in players is a very common response, especially in early days of horror games. And even so now, and that is a problem for the for the GM. I don't know that you can say that's a broken system, that's a dangerous mechanic, but you certainly can say it's something that a keeper needs to be aware of. And the the, the example that, that Robin no doubt would give on this panel is the the, the possible landmine that a, a broken a missed clue can derail plot, and he fixes that in Gumshoe, obviously. And I would say. Well, you know, you can go back and forth on whether it's broken or whether it's obvious or whatever. It's certainly not in the rules text, but virtually everyone has run into it enough that they've, you know, built a detour around it. Robin would respond, that's why I labeled the detour dumbass. And we would go back and forth from there. But the point is that that is still a bump in the road for the first-time keeper. Can I... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, when you talk about labeling the, the detour, it's the, one of the things that, that, that makes me realize is because uh, uh, landmines in games are often not just in the mechanics, right, or in the understanding of the mechanic, but in the game, and the game includes a lot of procedure and text and advice and things that surround it, where you say, if a rule is emergent, and you go into the game thinking, great, this game's going to do X, and you, find, you find out that it does X, but it also does Y as the rules interact, right, that you go... Oh, I didn't think about. It. I didn't think that the three deep ones would be that bad. Yeah, I mean, you, because it doesn't. Because there's nothing. Let's say, or you didn't read the passage, but there's yeah. nothing in the thing that says, "Do use one deep one first, right? If the game doesn't express that kind of stuff, perfectly reasonable mechanics can become volatile. When diving for cover, diving for cover. In, in Savage Worlds, the one thing is supers will dive for cover because the diving for cover mechanics are awesome. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Or in um, uh, uh, there's a couple of games that use the thing where when you dodge, it replaces your to hit number, right? Let's say. And so if you roll low, by you dodge into bullets. Yes. <laughs> you you dodge into the fire, right? And that uh, 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 mechanic is tricky if, like, it's if if it's out of genre or if it, it's a very dangerous. It's a literally dangerous mechanic, which yeah. is that you're, t- you're like, would you rather play it safe and maybe get hit, or would you rather gamble? And if you're not clear as a player, well, what are my odds at the, you know, you don't say, well, this is a, 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 you're increasing your odds of not getting hit, but the consequence for rolling is going to be worse than the consequence for not rolling, yeah. right? If these things aren't clear in the text, then the game can have a, 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 the game can be dangerous in a way that the rule is still stable, mm-hmm. but the rule is still solid. Yeah. So, I the mean, game is bigger than, than just the text. Yeah, the, the, the and, that's, and that's sort of what I was getting at with the, yeah. with the Call of Cthulhu example, because yeah. a lot of these things are... Are, are dangers that emerge from play and solutions that emerge from slightly more play. Experience, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the dangers are, I think, sort of really inherent in, in, the, in, the, in the book, and the solutions require an, an, an alert keeper. And that is a legitimate criticism that the keeper's advice, maybe in earlier editions of Call of Cthulhu, was not as tightly focused as it should have been. Fair enough. And some of that heals itself as the legend of Call of Cthulhu grows. Yeah, right. right people yeah. have because ex- yeah. I can benefit from Ken's experience. Right. Yeah. 
in much the same way that you can start playing, um, uh, you know, fourth, you know, four E, and saying the tiefling is so overpowered as to be stupid. No one who wants to be a munchkin shouldn't play a tiefling, right? And so it's like free teleport. Where do I sign? <laughs> and the um, uh, and and so the legend of which classes are overpowered yeah. spreads out, and, and you get a sort of best practices that is actually playing a tiny portion of four E. Well, not a tiny portion, like a but, third. No, but, but with third, yeah, that third yeah. had a ton of classes, yeah, that, right, yeah. and especially prestige classes mm-hmm. were a perfect example of this, because yeah. there were tons of them that were like, that's so useless, no one will ever possibly mm-hmm. Yeah. But if you do this, if you keep buying, the, if you buy these, if you're a spellcaster, though, yeah. and you keep getting spell progression, then you totally want a prestige class, because spell progression is all you get from your class anyway. <laughs> I love yeah. the, the, like, the prestige class, like the Ooze Master, which is like, there will be three encounters in which I will blow your mind. <laughs> when we see an Ooze, I'm going to break the hell out of this game. It's going to be, it's going to be magnificent. It's going to be like I had a spike chain. It's going to sit here. It's going to be like I had a spike chain, and... Oozes his pets. So that's, <laughs> I don't know what it's going to mean or how it's going to work. It's going to be awesome. The DM's like, for that reason, I cannot allow oozes in the game. But I can't tell you that because you already bought the class and you bought the book that the class was in, and you were very and the mini, and you're very excited about it. And so, uh, 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 yeah, I just yeah, the, yeah. the mechanic that hits the very small target, nothing else. So I can't argue with Numenera. Um, or sorry, I won't argue with Numenera. Um, I haven't read Numenera. But so I, I will, however, uh, ask you, uh, pitch that uh, softball right at you. Uh, so spending XP. This one first crossed my radar back in 7C, um, where so you get it, it, that one, the shorthand that is in a system where you get rewarded with fate points, drama dice, some kind of currency that you can spend to do extra cool things. Uh, that's fun, that's awesome, there's lots of cool things you can do with that in games. There's stuff you need to watch for, but it's very straightforward. In some games, that currency is also XP. And on paper, it looks like it makes sense, because you get rewarded with this stuff for doing cool stuff. Hey, you've just been awesome, have some drama dice, great. And now I'm facing this decision of, do I want to take a short-term benefit of, uh, of getting a boost, or do I want to actually sit on this and advance? And the big problem is... If advancement is important to your system, then the answer to that is basically so obvious as to... I can be awesome now, or I can be awesome forever. Well, I can be yeah, okay now. Yeah. It's not like right, that right, big right, a right, 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 I mean, right. a, And here's the thing. Like, old school, if you played, like, old school fudge uh, way before Fate, because Fate's got lots of Fate points, in old fudge, fudge points were rare, and they were worth, like, plus four. They were this huge well, thing. they were simply beyond. Yeah, like, they were just like... Yeah. And, and at that point, then it's like, okay, that's a choice. I could use this for advancement, or I could make a really big impact. But like, boy, transient bonus, or the thing that I desperately need to actually play the game. And of course, the best part of it is that it encourages PvP, because a lot of times you're spending that, or could be spending that penny or that fate point to save your buddy. Like, no, no, if you if you spend a plus one, then you'd kill that orc. But if I do, then I do not get, get exactly. to leave tomorrow. You can attack him on your turn. Uh, he's already attacking me. I can't attack him. He's chopped up my arm. It's wow. I, I have the aspect literally has my arms chopped up. <laughs> <laughs> and I suspect someone's going to compel that next round. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that is a dangerous one. Um, let me actually take a brief aside here. Indie story games are by no means exempt from this sort of thing. They're almost entirely different. Um, they are, but let me call out two that kind of get me and drive me crazy. Winner narrates. Yeah. Winner narrates is a dangerous mechanic as all hell because it seems like it should work. 
No, it doesn't. <laughs> it is never, anyone who's ever played a role-playing game with more than five people, and I mean right. in their lives, not at one table, knows why winter narratives oh, is a know, terrible but idea. Like, but people write into the rules. Uh, by the same token, setting stakes. Yeah. It seems like it should work. We should figure out what the stakes are for this conflict and make it meaningful. And in doing so, we introduce an academic exercise into this entire process that actually sacked the blood from it. Yeah. Step one of combat, grow a beard. Step two, stroke it. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I find setting stakes less gobsmackingly uh, dangerous, let's just stick with the, with the language, sure. than I do winner narrates. Because it is a mathematical certainty that 20% of the people you play any role-playing with, game with are, if not actually jerks, are playing such a divergent concept of the game from you that it will be mathematically indistinguishable from jerks, right? And it might be that the other five people at the table are looking at you askance thinking, who is this jerk with his unwillingness to bogart the hell out of the narrative every time he wins, right? You might be the jerk at that table by dint of your historical non-jerkdom. But the point I'm making is, that is just on its face ludicrous. Um, uh, scene setting, I think, is closer to what you and Fred had, where if you have been back and forthing in the indie space yep. for a long time, you've already eliminated all the bad scene setting choices, sure. right? Or all the bad um, uh, stake, stake setting stake. choices, right? And good indie games that have stake setting have a narrow menu of stakes yep. that you can set. You can set uh, win, win with consequence, win exactly. with awesome, it's right? And those are the yep, three that's, stakes. That's that why it's not, it's, that's not universally bad, right. but no, it's it, dangerous. It is dangerous. And I, I, I look at, at stake setting, and it's very much, I mean, because your story about you and Fred is so to point, because people who've played nothing but indie games for the last few years and have played it with dedicated indie game designers who are almost to a man nice people who want to see your game succeed with, you know, 20% or so exceptions. <laughs> um, mathematically. Mathematically. Uh, they don't run into those problems because they've already eliminated all the stupid stakes. And, and I think that if you put a little cadmium rod around stake setting, you say, these are the three kinds of stakes you can set. Sure. Or in the if your fiction demands more, yep. put if more got, in. If you've got right. fast procedures I mean, for it, you've got other ways to work one, one, of the, one of the great things about indie games is they're telling such a closely focused narrative nine times out of ten yep. that... There really are only a four or Absolutely. five different kinds of stakes. Well, the game's just weird things to be like, yeah. I mean, I'm going to call it right now. Pretty much, I can't think of a Jason Morningstar game that's not made entirely out of dangerous rules that work because, oh my god, Jason has made a deal with the devil. Yeah. Hence um, the name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, with, with, with Morningstar, yeah. I still haven't figured out how Fiasco stays up in the air. No, it just does. Yeah. That's why I consider it a category breaker, potentially, is if anyone ever figures out how to do that twice, we're going to be up to our armpits in Fiasco models. It's going to be like, you know, we're going to be wishing that it was back to Star World, right? Um, and so I look at Fiasco, I'm amazed that any of it works at all, right? It's like English democracy. Um, yeah, and I, I'd like to uh, highlight... Fiasco and the one specific element of Fiasco that is so absurd. So you just gave everyone the scene setting option and the tendency of people to escalate and escalate and escalate and jump right into the most extreme thing and then top the last person's most extreme it's, it's thing. It's almost as though that was a design goal. Yes. yes. <laughs> and just the... But that should not be! A, I... 
how has he made jerkdom work for him? God won't need insanity! <laughs> and I, I've seen these scene-setting mechanics infect other designs like my own. Um, and... Yeah, yeah, that's why they're dangerous. They fail. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I will say that that is exactly why I stopped playing Fiasco for about a year. <laughs> because you were terrified you, by no, its contra-gravity. You get into the arms race of escalation. I, I, it yeah. almost was as bad as the... Okay, set the scene. Um, there's a bullet going through your head. Do you die neatly or messily? <laughs> Is that a decision I get to make? <laughs> well, no. Yeah, you yeah. get to decide. Well, yeah, you get to pick a black die or a white die. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, Is your death noble and inspiring or gory and mortifying? Um, How much vomit is on your corpse? (laughs) Yeah, but it was one of those... And it was only one player. Yeah. He was just escalating himself. I tell him this all the time. But there, there may be a simpler problem than not playing Fiasco. <laughs> simpler solution to that. And that's one of those things again, where right? One of the core mechanisms of Fiasco that I yeah. think a lot of people overlook is the fact that um, the book and the title influence all of the play of the game. Yeah, right? yeah, and it's yeah. created a culture of play around it that makes yep. mechanics work that would throw... I mean, if you... Tr- I, I played prosaic games with Jason Morningstar where he's like, let's keep it low, we'll be really, you know... In fact, and it has you, you can make a game called stuff. prosaic, release really? everything yeah. with generic clip art, and... <laughs> right, and it wouldn't work because people would still escalate. So you call it fiasco, and well, now it works. Yeah, I, I have run those, played those, but they're twisted and bizarre. Yeah. Dazed is a dangerous mechanic, don't do that. Oh, God. Oh. Any mechanic, any mechanic that may keep someone from being able to do something. Yeah. yeah. Because boy, no one loves sitting and watching people play. More than <laughs> oh yeah, you know what? Stun. Yeah. yeah exactly. Stun. Yeah. Maybe yeah. stun. It, the whole and in GURPS specifically, yep. stun. Is, when I was writing GURPS horror, the fright check chart, yep. which is not a particularly dangerous mechanic, although I, in my opinion, a kludgy and undignified one. The fright check chart. The number of results for stun is really a lot. And when you try and map out, you know, small roles are supposed to be very little things and the big roles are supposed to be big things. Well, some genius thought stun was nicer than just taking a couple of hit points or having a hilarious effect. It's like, and given that GURPS combat rounds are very short, if you're stunned for six seconds, you're stunned for literally the whole combat. And six seconds is like the easiest stun. You're stunned for a minute. You're out for 60 rounds of combat. You literally might as well go home. Yeah. As I said, go, go to the kitchen and go, yeah. <laughs> go, go to your own kitchen. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Not, not the GM's kitchen. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, is, that is a rule that is only only becomes useful when you need to send someone out for food. Yeah. 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 Like, oh, boy, I think you just got stunned. And so my solution to that in horror is to let you do other things during stun yeah. that may not be productive in terms of combat, but yeah. are at least but fun still, to play. Right. Right? You, instead, instead, of, instead of removing any of the ability to do anything, you say, you can't move. In fact, 4E was very good for this. 4E had a, had a lot of statuses which were you are still in the fight, but impaired in one way. You have yeah. certain choices removed from your from your venue. And that's a lot, a lot better. Yeah. And that's, and that's one of the things that I tried to, you know, sort of avoid in, um, <coughs> in Night's Black Agents, is that in normal gumshoe, you're at minuses when you're, you know, knocked down. And when you're knocked out, the fight is over, right? And if you're knocked out before your friends are knocked out, that's the same as being killed before your friends are killed. As I'm watching. It's a misfortune, yep. but it's not, um, uh, you know, yep. <laughs> as infuriating. 
but so many of the things that would ordinarily stun you, just they subtract health or they subtract stability. They just move you farther down that trail. They're just they're, they're mechanically identical to taking a gunshot. Right. They just feel different in the fiction. Exactly. And if you can't think of anything more interesting than do nothing, think harder. Yeah. Think harder. Uh, I have a hypothesis to advance. It's that all mechanics are dangerous because uh, mechanics can create setting emergently in such a way that can completely overshadow the actual setting that's been paired with them. Yes, but only if you want to look at it in a super hippie way. Every <laughs> tool is a weapon if you hold it, right? But Rob, I'm thinking about how you illustrated rather aptly to the player who is very inclined to be regularly heroic that Rollmaster in no way supports being a hero because, yes. oh my god, oh my god, critical. <laughs> Right? No, no, and that's, that's totally, it, it is totally correct in that every good rule communicates something and conveys something and does something. And, if, yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah. if that thing is not in alignment with what your game wants to be, then it's a then it's a dangerous rule. Yeah. No matter how good, the in fact, let's use the martial arts in, in Cthulhu example. And that putting in the most awesome martial arts system in the world in Cthulhu would just be such a mismatch and it would confuse players and it would make that guy who invested in lots of martial arts because the rules have lots of martial arts so it must be cool. It's like having a, a, a two-hour character creation process for a really dangerous game. Yes! Right? Where you're like, I spent two hours making this character and there's a 90% chance I'll be killed in the first adventure. There's a reason called Cthulhu characters are so fast to make. Yeah, right. Uh, oh, and that... Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, and... Uh, uh, what's the... Oh, it was a, a dangerous kind of procedure but it's one of those things that I... That I that I encounter in D&D all the time is the if you miss, that means your character sucks. And that's a rule that doesn't actually exist in a lot of games, but exists in a lot of tables. Where they go, I roll bad, I guess I'm a moron. I guess, I I guess my character's really a terrible stupid. swordsman. Or I guess my, ter- my character's an awful detective. And you go, or it's possible the clue is really hard, or that your opponent is really tough, or yeah. whatever. This, right? is, this is something that we run into with Gumshoe, and it's an interesting way that girls are communicating something that we had no idea they communicated when we wrote it. In Gumshoe, um, you have a pool to do anything that has a chance of failure. So a general ability. So you're, yep. you're shooting, let's say. Um, you have a, a shooting pool. And when you roll a die, traditionally your target number is four against a good opponent. So with a normal shot, you have a 50% chance of hitting. 50% one, 50% yep. the other. When you spend your pool points, you get to add to that chance of hitting, right? So in theory, you can spend three pool points and guarantee, guarantee. a hit, pretty much. Right. So, the thing is, all right, I go in, I have shooting nine, I must be really good at shooting. It says nine, that's like the biggest number on my sheet. That means I have three guaranteed shots, and now I only have a 50% chance of hitting. And people say to me, why did my character become terrible at shooting people? It's like, your character did not become terrible at shooting people. Your character has a 50% chance of hitting, and really meaningfully. But so does everyone else. If you compare that to D&D, that's way better. And you are, and you're saying, well, I'm just rolling dice and, and, and seeing if I hit. It's like you've done that since you were 12 in every other game. Sure. But because we gave you a thing to do first, yep. it now feels, you know, like you know, we gave you a candy bar and then we took it away. I'm totally the player who's complaining to Canada. Yeah, right. Yeah. That, that mechanic makes me crazy. Yeah. Because I feel because I do feel like uh, it is it is I'm using up my capability, which. Yeah. Seems totally non-intuitive to me. Right. Yeah. What does a gumption point represent? Right. Yeah. And that's know. and that's the thing that we attempt to communicate slightly better in every iteration. Yes, in every iteration. Say. But boy, the fact that I learned it yes. as a terrorist really was like, 
Yeah. And, and, and the thing is, it doesn't break the fiction that Robin and I are designing, no. but it breaks some of the fiction that people are reading in the rules we write. And then... I mean, it even is though, very clear that yeah. Robin is much more comfortable thinking in pools. Yeah, than I am. right. I mean, that's just obvious from yeah. his design. But the but the um, uh, the the, the uh, but it, but it, but it is what you were talking about. The game is so much more than the rule set that yep. people bring. Ex- and it's not even just your rule set and your right. game and your marketing and your copy. People bring their experiences in other games and their expectations right. in other games to your game. Right. And I, <laughs> I've I've had people when they say, "I'm just rolling a die to see if I hit." And I say, like every other game you've ever played, then. Yep. And it's literally like they'd never thought of that. <laughs> and their eyes light up and they're like, oh yeah! <laughs> Is that what and I've been doing? I can't really write that into the rule set because it sounds mean on paper. Sometimes it sounds mean. A little sidebar that's labeled, hey dummy. <laughs> that's just not going to fly. And Mr. Ken reaching out of the book and just smacking you upside the head. Give this, give the, give a copy of this sidebar <laughs> and my email address to your largest friend. <laughs> but um, the, but yeah, I mean, I, I, and I see that. I mean, I can look from their perspective. I mean, I'm not devoid of empathy. I don't use it a lot. That's why there's so much stored up. Um, but <laughs> do it three times and be done. That's right. Yeah, exactly. I'm really good at it. I'm just saving it for a spotlight moment. <laughs> and so I can see how it feels to someone because I understand you're, you're using it. And to an extent, that's exactly the kind of brain chemistry that the whole notion of resource management plays on in the first place. Yep. But it really does affect a lot of people's understanding of how the game plays. Sure. And yeah. the mechanic, yeah. I would posit, is not particularly dangerous, quad-dangerous, well, but it does send an odd message. I would, for example, say it is very dangerous because pool mechanics are very dangerous if their refresh mechanic is not uh, robust enough to keep yeah. up. My actual problem with these terrorists is not actually spending from the pool, it's that getting back into the pool yeah. is uneven and potentially disconnected from the pacing. In fairness to, to your point, I had that similar problem with esoterrorists in my playtest yep. that I did to design Night's Black Agents. And if you look at Night's Black Agents, there are a lot more refresh opportunities. Exactly. And when we put out Double Tap, there are even yeah. more. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 it's one and it's why, and to go back to Numenara, Numenara actually has a very robust refresh yeah. um, that's set up uh, in, uh, in, akin to four that's short rests. So. Uh, uh, yeah, four minutes. So, one, so I'll throw one more out. Uh, in the uh, hippie field, specifically another fiasco mechanic that is he. So, first person, come up with an idea, say it, that's what happens. Just, you know, the, the first first creative contribution is the thing that sticks. That's great, it just keeps the narrative flowing and everything does keep snapping along. Oh yeah, those three people are not talking. Right, it's the, yeah. the Ken and Fred run over everybody. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah, or as, as it's also called, the cannon runs over everybody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's start. We got a couple of minutes. So questions. Uh, so, so dangerous specialists, and based on some of your stories about how they came to be, how much of dangerous rules designers? Do you think you could take Fred Hicks in a fight? Yes. Uh, <laughs> well, do I think I take Fred Hicks in a fight? Yeah. Fred is so sweet, but I'm so weak, so I don't. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I think Rob can take Fred. How about you? Do you think you can? I cannot kill my friend. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think that 
if I said whether I could take Fredericks in the fight, I would give away the crucial advantage <laughs> that I might or might not have in a fight with Fred. I'm a right to inform you, I am literally a master in the Joe Sticks. Anybody <laughs> <laughs> got any Joe Sticks? Yeah, he spent, he spent money for those. Um, does anyone have a real question? <laughs> I'm going to do something... Oh, God, let's hear yeah, besides um, people being jerks and hogging the spotlight, is there any other reason that uh, Winter Narrates can be a dangerous mechanic? Or is there any other... Yes, uh, it's super sloppy. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. right. There's even well-intentioned people can have no sense of pacing. Um, it or can, they could be answering a short-term problem. It's just exactly. a they, problem. Can up, they can end up scrolling the game all over the point. Um, it tends to really mess with consequences. Um, it tends to make the consequences of play super soft because you're just offloading them to the narrative, which uh, one thing that tends to happen a lot when consequences are purely narrative is that people just sort of shrug them off and keep playing. It forces players who do not want to contribute to the narrative to contribute to the narrative, thus causing, at best, a a mismatch in in play and paralysis paralysis and resentment. Yep. They often do not tell people when to stop narrating. Yes. 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 That's what I wanted to hear. Thank you. So... We, we actually need to roll the end credits because we never introduced ourselves. Everybody knows who we are, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, well I'm, I'm Fred Hicks. Hicks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he can take Will Heimarch in a fight. Yes, I'm Damn I'm straight. <laughs> uh, I'm when I see Will Heimarch, I'm going to punch the shit out of him. <laughs> Wait, see, we're liking this. Uh, Rob, I know you people have. Yeah. Will Heimarch. Kenneth Height. Jason Bett. All right. This seminar recording was made possible by the generous contributions of the panel speakers and the Metatopia Convention Organizing Team, Double Exposure. All of the Double Exposure conventions are amazing, and I can't speak highly enough of Metatopia as a convention for designers to meet up, to discuss, to test, and to learn more about this lovely hobby of ours. You can find out more at www.dexposure.com. And I hope you'll join us next year at Metatopia.